Hello and welcome to Comic Book Decalogue. My name is Greg Hunter, recording from a Comics Journal satellite lab in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You're listening to a big episode, in fact, installment number one of the show's first two-parter. This interview barely follows the podcast's 10-question format. In fact, it doesn't really follow the 10-question format because our guest is sort of a force of nature, the great Eddie Campbell. People may know Eddie's work from his Alec comics, a massive and provocative run of autobiographical stories, or his cerebral adventure series Bacchus, both the Alec stories and the Bacchus stories collected and massive volumes from Top Shelf, by the way. He's also taken part in collaborations like From Hell, the celebrated interpretation of the Jack the Ripper story he did with Alan Moore. If you're listening to this, there's a reasonable chance you're familiar with all of the above. In any case, I'm going to keep this intro brief and get right into the... Oh. Oh, no. Are those sleigh bells? Oh, 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 Merry Christmas. Um, hi, Santa. Eddie Camel, huh? Not bad yet. And with me, that's quite a twofer. Uh, yeah, yeah, thanks for inviting yourself. For people who aren't aware, you were on the Dylan Horrocks episode last year, and we had kind of a, a strained conversation. Oh, I don't remember it like that. Well, I mean, it's literally... I mean, it was recorded. So, any reads you really liked this year? You mean comics from 2016? Um, Dream Tube by Rebecca Dunlap. I thought that was a good book. Um... Not Away by Joshua Cotter. That was really cool. That's the start of what, a seven, eight volume series? Not Away? Yeah, I think so. Or it sounds like the plan. I know I'll follow it. Oh, 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 love the ambition. That actually brings me to why I'm here. Oh, yeah? I've spent the last year doing some cartooning myself during my downtime at the pole. Uh-huh. Now all I need is a publisher. All right, so... What, are you here to hit me up for contacts? Oh, 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 you got it. I've been around too long to be sheepish, and hey, every great artist is one part salesperson. But I think you really like this stuff. You got it here? Selections, yes. Autobio, mostly. So it's funny that you're having Eddie Campbell on the show. Though I think of these more as Harvey Picar on the North Pole. That's a good sort of tagline. I can't knock that. Here, take a look at these pieces. You know what? Since you're here, I... Oh, wow. Huh. You know, at a glance, these look... They actually look really good. Well, shucks. I think of the figure drawing as my take on the sort of fluid anatomy of uh, Eleanor Davis or Lily Gray, but uh, against a backdrop that gets close to photorealism. Wow, yeah. This is some super detailed work. You can you can almost feel the wood grain on the workshop benches. A few elves are employed as art assistants, I freely admit. It's kind of like a manga studio. But you know, if it's good enough for Urasawa. Well, nothing wrong with that. Oh, you know what? And I like this. Uh, where you're making the list and checking it twice and we can sort of see the, the good deeds and the bad deeds of the kids floating your head. That's fun. It's a modest use of the form, but I think it helps. Hmm, all right, so with these pages, it looks like we start to get into what you do during your off months as the comic goes along. That's right. Looks like a little vacation, then you're back, and... What? 
I don't even... I don't understand what I'm looking at on this one page. It's like you're surrounded by, like, tubes and machines and stuff. Parabiosis. Like the blood transfusion? The blood of people in the prime of their youth, specifically. That part's important. What did you think I did to stick around like this? Oh, great. Is that... That's my main man, Peter Thiel. It gets kind of boring without a buddy. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be on board with guys who are all about that sort of ultra-Randian Silicon Valley attitude that tech people should have their own sovereign nations, even if he weren't connected to Donald Trump and Hulk Hogan. I'd like to think I gave him the idea for the sovereign nation part. Up at the North Pole, we're an independent state, free from the scourge of government overreach. You know what, for a second, I thought this was going to go different than it did last year, but I am very much not enjoying this conversation. Oh, don't condescend to me, you Midwestern stiff. Hey, here's a question. Why can't your buddy Peter Thiel publish your completely disturbing rich guy science vampire comics? Can't buy cred, baby. I was thinking, if you have any contacts at Koyama or Uncivilized, I wouldn't want Peter to have to give TCJ the Gawker treatment. Well, you know what? I apologize in advance to everyone involved if that happens, but I can't imagine purposely doing anything that could conceivably help you in this process. Oh, oh, oh well, all right. You'll regret it. Goodbye. See you next year. What? No. All right. Uh, well, I guess I have that to look forward to next year. In the meantime, here's part one of the comic book Decalogue interview with Eddie Campbell. Please enjoy. Now, we were talking a bit before we started recording about whether you know, there's a, a, an ahistorical quality to the comics making of today. Let me ask you, uh, when you were coming up as you know, the, the 20-year-old Eddie Campbell, uh, what would you say your footing was with respect to the history of, of comics and illustration? Because you did go to art school, yes? No. No. For, well, I, I did a foundation course, which is just a one-year course, during which you're supposed to... It's probably all different now, but during which you're supposed to narrow your your focus and, and, and pick your subject, so the foundation course covers everything. I was trying to get into graphic design, and, but I, I failed to get into a course, and I... I, I I left college after this that one year foundation course and worked in a factory for five years. Actually, I, th- I think I worked in a government office for two years and made sure it's a mess of that. <laughs> I made a mess of that. I worked in the social security office and I was making overpayments all over the place and causing mayhem and catastrophes and they they asked me if I wouldn't rather be working somewhere else. They couldn't actually fire me, I don't think. I, I, it's very difficult to throw something out of a government office, or at least it was in those days. Mm-hmm. It's probably easier now. So I worked in a, at a factory for, for... I forgot, what was the question? What were you talking about then? Oh, um, the the foundation you had in the history of comics when oh, you were a, a, a the, the, young so man the, doing... Right. The, the, say, the first Alex strips. The problem so. with the... the problem with the college thing was that I don't know what they were supposed to be teaching you 
because I was always very interested in history. I was interested in the history of art. I, I had a very comprehensive idea of, of art and in all its forms and in guises and they seemed to be up a strange street of, of art in the 1970s and then they remained that way for some time uh, where, where, where you know if, if you're interested in abstraction and then peculiar happenings and staging nonsensical things in the middle of the street then art school was the right place for you mm. I, I, I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to be I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an important artist in the world who, who just happened to be using the medium of comics as his voice. And I, I obviously wasn't able to express that very clearly at the various interviews that I had to sit through, because nobody'd done that before. Whereas now you could say, "Well, I want to do it like Chris Ware is doing," or mm -hmm. or. or or I want to be like that man Spiegelmouse. I want to be Artie Spiegelmouse. Then they would understand what you were mm -hmm. talking about because Artie Spiegelmouse has won prizes and, and is considered a, a, an intellect of his moment. Back then, it was impossible to point to that thing that you wanted to be. It didn't exist yet. I forgot what we're talking about. But you had articulated this to yourself at the time. Very clearly. I, I knew exactly what I, I... And I saw myself... And I saw myself as being the extension of the history of comics, going all the way back to, you know, Fred Opper and George Harriman and Walt Kelly, etc., yeah, to pick three in, in succession down through the century, and I, I so I, I always had this sense of um, this was the context in which I, I I would create my art, in which I was creating my art, and creating my art had nothing to do with um, becoming a, a comic artist or making my living as a comic artist. I, I, I believed I was doing it anyway uh, whether anybody ever recognised it in the end and that, that context I feel has, has this was a conversation we were having to refer to the conversation mm -hmm. we had earlier which the reader is not, uh, does not have access to I feel that this is um, something that that I've lost, I've lost or lost sight of, and I, because of that, I, I find it harder to to create in the way that I in within the continuity that I was following. In that, you know, there was the big alley book, and there was the fate of the artist, and then there was the lovely horrible stuff. They the, the succession of books in which I. Uh, made comics out of the stuff of life that was in front of me. Uh, they were autobiographical comics, I suppose, as the, the genre is called. But I, I kind of lost sight of that context. I, uh, 
I was reading the interview with um, Tom Spurgeon in the, on the Comics Journal site yesterday where he said that creating comics is, has become more difficult. It's like you make your comic and then you throw it in the ocean. It's like throwing it in the ocean. And I thought that that is so true. And ten years ago, I'd, I'd felt that there was there was a there was a context, another context. If if, if one was creating the, a, a book within the context of this history, I'm, I'm extending the narrative of this history. That seemed to me a an audience waiting to receive one's book, so that one sent one's book out there and among the other books, and it jostled for a position. And it get into arguments with the other books, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure that's possible anymore. That the context seems to have disappeared. I have, to, I have to play devil's advocate though and ask. I think this the sense of a break in continuity, a loss of context. I wonder if, if to a degree, it's part and parcel with becoming an artist of a certain age. I mean, this is a. I'm segueing into a. A different topic entirely to an extent, but I, I also think that if you're a young person these days, a, a comics reader of twelve or fourteen, it's maybe never been a better time to be a reader of the medium in terms of the proliferation of voices and sensibilities you have access to. Yeah, this is this is true. I I I, I read less and less comics. The older I get, I think to myself. What can I learn from a comic book? At the, at the age of 60, what is a comic book going to tell me that I, that I didn't know already? In fact, the, the, the last comic book I did read was written by somebody older than me. It was, it was March by uh, the Congressman, mm-hmm. which, uh, which I see was, uh, is up for uh, some kind of... Oh, what was it? The National Book Award. Mm-hmm. The John Lewis Snake Powell collaboration. That I, I, That's I'm, a great. I'm now obliged that... to mention that uh, the first formal question of this uh, interview would be, "What's the last comic you finished reading?" So that's a. Yeah, yeah. I, I just <laughs> uh, I, I read through that recently. It is a, it is it is a great. Book. Now the guys have done a good job on that. So they've, they've got, they get hold of the congressman and they thought, "This is a story for the ages. We'll um, we'll get the congressman to tell his story." We'll make the comic, and the, the congressman thinks it's a good idea. Again, because of the the context of the, they managed to give him a context for this. The context being the old um, that old eight page comic, the sixty twelve page, the old twelve page public uh, information comic. I think I know what you're talking about Martin Luther King. The Martin Luther King comic of, of about nineteen fifty eight, because the guys came, to, Andrew Aiden came to me back in there because he was asking me what I thought the origin I helped him figure out the uh, the origins of that where who had done it and where it came from way back then that, that, that was a kind of comic that seemed to exist in the, the 50, late 40s 50s early 60s in fact Will Eisner would get into that field of public service comics meaning meaning a comic designed as a giveaway even if you've got a, a message you're trying to foist on the, off on the public uh, a couple of I, Eisner did some things that he was severely criticised for. One, one was a public service comic in defence of vivisection, for instance, which was about Bowser the dog and Bowser's good deeds in service of humanity. That was one, but it was a, an interesting genre of comics that had a, 
the, the Martin Luther King belonged to and there were a couple of different packagers of these things so I was able to get to the root of who produced the comic it was it came out of Elliot Kaplan's studio and Elliot Kaplan was Al Cap's brother and having figured that out we were able to look at who the artist probably was we we managed to figure out that it may have been Cy Barry who later drew the Phantom through corresponding with James de Vadaboncourt Jr. Um, anyway, how do I remember that? That was an interesting problem that we, we had to figure out. But anyway, yeah, that, that's the... That, that's a, it's a great... Uh, they've done a great job on that. I remember first looking at that, and it, the, I, I, there seemed to be a dynamic to it, the, the kind of Nate's hasty, sloshy, uh, do-this-thing-quickly kind of dynamic. I, I, but it's right. It, it works. Do you think it balances the gravity of the topic? Yeah, he, he's got this kind of fast slapdash kind of voice, which I think was necessary in this book because it would have taken too long, it would have taken a million years to do otherwise if he tried to make everybody look like historical people and he's got he's got the guts of the story you know he's he's and it's well organized and it's well told it's yeah i'd like to see it win an award now ordinarily the second question we ask is what cartoonist doesn't get enough praise but we were also talking in advance of this interview about a larger endeavor of yours which falls along those lines i would say your upcoming i don't want to call it a sports cartooning book but right I've um, and, and, to, and to kind of follow on from what we were already saying I've, I've become more interested in the the larger the total context of comics and I've found myself going back and uh, taking a look at the, the beginnings of comics the, the, in, in newspapers of the 1890s and I found that if you actually go back and look at the stuff the story comes out quite differently from the way that it's been passed down in histories of the comics. So much of the history, the histories of the comics is all about extracting what we today call comics, you know, the, the sequential narratives, mm. out and just looking at them separate from everything else. And that seems to me an arbitrary thing to do because if you go back... There's nothing in the material that says that this, the sequential narratives are special, or that they, or that they're going to give rise to, to a special kind of art, or even that comics and sequential art are the same thing. This is not what you find if you actually go and look at the old newspapers back there from the beginning. And one of the most interesting aspects of this, if you. If you rearrange everything is the the importance of the, the sporting pages with regard to old cartoons and comics for instance i find that the the sport the sports page cartoon is a magnificent invention in its own right usually it, it's a a heroic or athletic figure treated seriously at the center of the composition surrounded by facetious doodles in which mm -hmm. 
the same figure in the centre is now mocked uh, as a cartoon drawing. So, so he exists in two different kind of drawings in the same context of this cart- of this singular cartoon. And this was the style of, of doing these things. But apart from that, apart from that being a rather uh, uh, astonishing cartoon assemblage, which, which interests me intensely, and I was interested in how it was arrived at, who invented it and how that came about. But, but the sports page was also the, the site of other transactions. For instance, the, very, the earliest daily cartoons came off the sports page. Some of the most important cartoonists started as sports page cartoonists. Like uh, daily cartoons, Matt and Jeff, Crazy Cat, came up, came up the sports pages. Uh, Barney Google. And other ones that are forgotten today, such as Silk Hat Harry's Divorce Suit, came off the sports page. Because the thing about the sports page was that it was the sports page was aimed at the adult male. Well, Rube Goldberg's cartoons came off the sports pages. Even when he was no longer drawing sports, he was still on the sports page. Mm-hmm. He was a sports page cartoonist. And I'd, as I was showing you earlier, I've, I've, in, my, in the book that I've, I, I designed, there's a, 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 there's, there's a particular funny Rube Goldberg cartoon where he'd, he'd run with a news story that uh, a professor in Illinois uh, uh, has come up with the idea that courtship should be taught in schools. And so Rupe Goldberg has, has made a spoof of the whole idea of, of he's got professors, he's got his little cartoons of professors telling the pupils mm-hmm. how to get around women. And, and he's, he's spoofing the whole idea of lovemaking as, as a thing taught in schools. Now, this is not something you could put on the, the children's page. This is not something that would happen in the funnies because you gave that to the kids. There was a different kind of comics happening on the, the sports page because that was aimed at the adults. And these cartoons did not necessarily have anything to do with sports. They did at first, but, but these cartoonists ran. Cartoonists have a tendency to run away with the thing, mm. to, to to bend it to their nefarious purposes. Um, and I was interested how the whole thing about all of this came out of San Francisco. When I looked at the picture of uh, of cartooning in New York, I found all the major sports page cartoonists in New York were San Franciscans. And I thought, why is that? You know, Tad Dorgan for the New York Journal, Robert Edgren for Pulitzer's New York World, Rube Goldberg on the New York Evening Mail, Robert Ripley on the Globe, Hype Igo on the American, George Harriman, mm-hmm. who was also in the Journal. All, all these artists had come from the West Coast and they brought their own particular kind of cartooning sensibility with them and it... Uh, it was a, a very volatile and uh, inventive kind of cartooning. And I wanted to tell the story. I want to figure out the story of that and then tell it. So I've designed this book. It's called The Goat Getters. And it's going to be published probably within a year by IDW and um, in collaboration with uh, Ohio University Press. The book was too studious for a, a commercial publisher and too breezy for an academic publisher. I've had to bring them together on this. The f- a first such collaboration. I want to loop back to something you said earlier about uh, the question of, of sequence in, in defining comics. Uh, you know, the difference between 
sequential art in a literal way in comics. And you see in these early sports page cartoons, there's also a very literal tension between realistic figure drawing and reduction and exaggeration. You have these smaller figures, you know, on the on the fringe yeah. of an illustration that's closer to photorealism. So I, it feels a bit unfair to ask you to define what is the essence of comics. And, and even so, I have to wonder, is, is that tension between exaggeration and reduction versus photorealism? Well, the thing about, com- the thing about comics is that in the 1890s, comics just meant funny pictures. A funny picture mm-hmm. who's no, who had no other purpose than to be funny. Now, the cartoon on the front of the paper was a political cartoon. The, the political cartoon was, was a, a complicated uh, combination of symbolism and caricature, which it, the essential formula of it had been arrived at a hundred years before, but that was the political cartoon. There's another type of cartoon which we'll call simply caricature. It's usually yeah. a, little, a little figure with a big head. Big head caricature. They're the kind of little things you used to get in sets and cigarette carts. Famous famous baseball players. Little, little figures with big heads. You know, caricatured heads. The, the portrait charge as the French call it. You know, the the humorous portrait. The point is to capture the the essential character of, of a celebrity, a politician, sportsman. Sports was a was a was a was a great subject for the for the just the single figure caricature. So those are those are three types of cartoon: the the the, the political cartoon, the big head caricature. You know, the celebrity interview would be accompanied by a, a big head caricature. Of, of, the, of the interviewee, of the subject. That's a specific kind of cartoon that has a long history. You know, there were magazines like Vanity Fair, that, that was what they did. They just gave you portraits, of, and you still see them in, around pubs in London, uh, framed, these framed portraits from Vanity Fair by Ape and Spy, I can't remember their real names. That was a, 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 a separate line of cartooning, completely separate from the political cartooning. And the comics. The comics were things were just they were just fun. They, they were just funny. They had no other purpose. They were just funny. And a paper could buy in the funny pictures, and they could just use them to fill up spaces. Because they weren't attached to the news, they could use them to fill up spaces here and there. Now there's another kind of cartoon, which is a genre of cartoon that nobody's paid any attention to. I'm going to call them story cartoons. I have done in my book. Not because they tell a story, which they usually do, but because they are attached to a story. So, at the front of the comic, you would you would get the uh, at the front of the newspaper, you get the important people, and they they'd appear in, in caricature, whether in the the political cartoon or in the the interviews or whatever. But at the back, you always get the the foolish story. Mm. It's like you get at the end of the news now. You know, there's that that that. There's war in Bosnia, there's flooding in Florida, but never mind. In the studio today, we've got a talking dog. Yet, wait, there's always a, the news always likes to end with something frivolous, and it, it did back then too. But they would give that story to the, the cartoonist to illustrate, and he. And this seems to be a particularly San Francisco thing. 
The, the cartoonist would illustrate it with a few little vignettes. He would retell the story. He would paraphrase the story in almost a little... We might want to call them comics now, but, but they didn't call them comics then because comics was something else. These were, these were news stories. And I'm calling them story cartoons. And nobody's ever talked about this completely lost genre of cartooning. And, and I, I do a couple of chapters on, on about this. This evolves into the sports cartoon, and it also evolves into the um, the sports page comic strip, which is different from the, the Sunday Funnies comic, mm. because it, it can relate to the news of the day. It, it can it can it can have adult content in in the sense of mocking marriage or whatever, because it's on the sports page. The joke on the sports page was always that. Marriage was, marriage was a joke. And I don't know if women ever read the sports pages or, they, or whether they were horrified to find that this is what men thought or, or whether they, they thought, well, that's just, that's just the joke that men have among themselves, whatever. But this is the running joke on the sports page. I just remember the title of a running comic. What was it? How, how to be happy but married. <laughs> Think, things like that. That was the title of one running comic, for instance, on the sports page. Barney Google, who in his early days um, was married, but was swiftly separated from his wife after he buys a racehorse. This, these are, these are, this is what happens. On, these are the kind of things that happen on the sports page. And I was very interested, how did it get that way? How did the sports page become like that? How did it become... And that's what, that's what the book's about. Um, so, the, so the four early kinds of cartooning... Comics develops out of that. You know, there's the Sunday Funnies, and even the Sunday Funnies weren't sequential art at first. But comics weren't sequential art. That, that's, something that, that's something we've invented today. That's something that Scott McLeod made up. And I always argued with McLeod back in the day that you can't just make it up. You know, that might apply. You can say that applies today, but you can't backdate it to the, to the 19th century because they had different ideas back then. And it's worth looking at their ideas because, as I say, I look at them and I find there's all this stuff that got left behind. There's all these interesting... There's a whole genre of cartoons that were nobody's collected, nobody's talked about, nobody's written about. Well, I've written about them now. How, how do you account for the traction the sequential tradition within comics then has had with cartoonists of the last 80 or so years? Do you have a theory for why that... But, one out. Well, even, even if you go and buy, even if you go and buy a newspaper, like if you go and buy a newspaper, if you go and buy the newspaper funnies, I've got a few of these hanging around the house just for the sake of argument, uh-huh. right? <laughs> and you count all the, if you count all the, the subjects in it, there might be twenty four titles. If you separate the sequential ones from the ones that are just single images, you find that thirteen of them might be single image comics. Who decided that they're not... You know, Scott McLeod decided, well, they're not comics, because I've decided, he says, these are the comics. But the comic session has always consisted of a mix. The Far Side, for instance, started a, a revival of the single mm-hmm. image comics. So, you know, like, there's... Non sequitur, and, I, you know, there's loads of them. I mean, there's loads of them in there. I can't remember the titles. They don't interest me that much. But, but the comic supplement's always been like that. that that's an, an, another kind of comic that came out of the Midwest. I'm, do, I'm doing another book about Midwest cartooning, the panel comic. You know, the panel comics of Claire Briggs, 
and H.T. Um, Webster. Mm-hmm. They're, they're wonderful things. They're, you know, H.T. Webster's Life's Darkest Moment and Briggs's When a Fella Needs a Friend. And they, they'd have these motto titles. They'd alternate the titles. The title wouldn't be the same every day, but they'd, they'd keep coming back to In the Days of Real Sport was another one of Briggs's and so on. And, and that's another that's another type of comic, the panel comic, and it's a wonderful subject. I'd, I'd like I'd like to see a, a, a proper treatment of that, mm. which I've got, which I'm writing. I'm writing that one now. I'm writing another book. But there's just so much more in the history of, of mm. cartoons and comics than than has ever paid attention to today. It's a much more Alive and vibrant and an interesting subject, which, which we've we try to simplify down into some kind of dopey formula. I got into an argument recently, for instance. The last time I was on the the the, 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 the comics journal site, I got into an argument about Nord illustration. We, we had this idea now that illust because see, this came out of the art world that because the, in the art world, art should not be telling a story, art should not even have a, 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 a literal subject, art should not have a, a figurative it shouldn't represent something figurative from the actual world. Mm-hmm. If, if you take all that stuff out of art then, then you've got what art, what's left is art, which is kind of nothing. I'm not saying that in a negative way, I'm saying that can be interesting. <laughs> I find that intensely. <laughs> I find that intensely. What if we take out, take out everything that means anything? I mean, what was there was that guy won the won, won the was it? He won the award for art. He created this room with a light that went on and off. And somebody said to him, "What does it mean?" And he said, "Well, what do you mean? What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's art. So meaning is like is like an unnecessary thing. Right? We're taking the meaning out of it." Art's what's left after you get rid of anything that means anything. Mm. And so, in the art world, to say that something is illustrative uh, is, is, is uh, an insult. That, that it's, it's, it's less than nothing. It's illustration. But for some reason, comics have picked up this snobbery of illustration. Something is mere illustration. And I get involved in this argument with a fellow who was saying, well, well the comic artist... He's the all the actors. He's the set designer. He's the cinematographer. He's everything. Whereas an illustrator just does a couple of pictures. <laughs> an illustrator just does a couple of spot illustrations. And I thought, well, Norman Rockwell was one of the great illustrators. You know, some of the greatest artists of the twentieth century were illustrators, and 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 some of the greatest illustrators were better than any comic book artist. There's no comic book artist as good as Rockwell. So, so why do we have this? Why do we look down on illustration? Why is illustration a dirty word? I, I couldn't understand it. It's it's beyond me. The, the the whole comics world is getting some stupid habits, and it's intensely boring. Now, I I should ask. This is sort of a, a biographical footnote. Uh, you you yourself, of course, do work in in a sequential mode most of the time, and are you able to look back and, and identify the factors in your life, in your 
uh, artistic diet that that led you toward a comic storytelling as opposed to, if, if you'll permit the binary, as opposed to the work of an illustrator? Well, um, the, man, the man who I, th I think is the, the greatest comics maker of today, the last thing, Chris Ware, the last thing I saw of his was his illustration on the front of The New Yorker two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Can I a single... There's two police officers. The two police officers. A black officers. man and a white man yeah. in the same car. Brilliant single illustration. You know, this uh, dichotomy, this either-or business is, 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 is totally unnecessary to the world of cartooning. When I was doing, when I was doing court sketching for a television channel, I just thought it was an interesting thing to do. But I, I read... And I talked about it on my blog, and I read somewhere, even Eddie Campbell can't make a living from comics. He has to do court sketching. And I thought, I, was, <laughs> I didn't need to do it. I was doing it because mm. I thought it would get me out of the house. <laughs> I go in and get to draw actual, I get to listen to courtroom dramas, and it might stimulate my storytelling imagination. In fact, I came, I came away from it with, an, with a very heightened view of the of the court reporter's craft. Because I was in there, you know, it was a reporter who would call me in to, to do her sketching for her story. And I would sit there sometimes and, I, I, and I'd think, I did this about 30 or 40 times, you know, did just <laughs> individual court sketching jobs. And I'd be, it was always for the same reporter. And I'd be sitting there thinking, well, I'm a writer of stories, I'm a storyteller. I can't see any story in this. I, I can't see how she's going to get a story out of this. This, might, this one might get ditched. Mm. And then I'd watch the news that night and she'd, she'd phoned up by somebody else in, in social services. She'd phoned up. There. She'd found an argument in the problem, that I, in, in the situation that I hadn't seen. And she'd turned it into a story. She'd, she'd, she'd called this guy and in the governor's office, she'd call this guy, she turned it into, into a debate, into an argument, mm -hmm. where he says this, he says that, um, and this poor woman it, it was left, whatever, without going into the, the details of the story. But I came away with, with a, an admiration for the, for the craft of, the reporter's craft of, of, of making a story out of this event of it was a minor human catastrophe. No, no, it was a major human catastrophe. It was a failed double suicide. But <laughs> at the time, I, I thought I couldn't see where the story was going to go. And, and I, I learned lessons. So I was going out, and I was learning stuff. But, I, you know, I was learning stuff I wasn't going to learn sitting at my desk. But this idea that, that to do these sequential narratives is somehow the, the be-all and end-all of... The comic, art, the comic artist's task in life seemed to me um, a misunderstanding. You know, there's so much more out there that we've, we've got to wrestle with. Um, and, and sequential art is just, one is just one tool. That's just... It's not the... You know, it, it's not the, it's not the, the calling. It's mm -hmm. not the... The aspiration, that, that's just one of the tools at our disposal. And if it's the one that we, that I have used the most, certainly, well, you know, I, well, I've enjoyed it and um, the books are there. But I've also done 
I've also done big head caricatures for bookmarks for a local bookshop. I, mm-hmm. You know, I, where I did big head caricatures of authors. I've never done political cartoons. I've never... I don't think I would have been good at that. And why is that? Um, I'm not a caricaturist. Usually when I draw, when I draw actual people, I'm usually striving to capture them just as they are. I'm not... I, I very rarely have the, the ability to exaggerate and, and, and to see the possibilities and how a face can be exaggerated like, like Ralph's, the great political cartoonist like Ralph Steadman mm-hmm. does for example I remember he did a, a great series of pictures once where he he manipulated Polaroids while the emulsion was still wet like he, he took a Polaroid uh-huh. Margaret Thatcher but then he pulled the emulsion this way and that way it was genius. He gave her the long pointy nose just by dragging the emulsion sideways. And, and you know, he, he had this natural talent for it, which I don't have. <laughs> All right, that was the end of part one. Please come back next month for part two. <laughs>